2022 has been a record year for legislation targeting trans people in the U.S. More than 155 bills were filed in state legislatures across the country, according to a Washington Post analysis. And according to NPR, about 86 percent of legislation aimed at trans people filed in the last two years targets children. Trans kids are kids, and you got to showcase the suffering so that people understand, but you got to showcase the joy and the happiness that people are also experiencing. That was Emma. We changed their name to protect their identity. Their younger sister is trans. We spoke with Emma when we traveled to Austin, Texas, as part of our Remaking America series. It explores Americans' trust in institutions and the health of our democracy. We also met Rory, a trans teenager living in Austin. He told us what gender-affirming care meant to him. I, I just didn't know how terrible I felt about myself until I got to, you know, become myself and see how strong I could be and how, you know, beautiful I could become. And I, it breaks my heart that any child would get that taken away from them. And I hope, and I hope that no child ever does have to go through that. And that was Rory, a trans teenager whose name has also been changed to protect his identity. In February, Republican Governor Greg Abbott issued a directive that classifies gender-affirming care as child abuse. Shortly after, state investigations into Texas families began. The American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the American Psychological Association all condemned the governor's order for the harm classifying gender-affirming care as child abuse could cause young people. But Texas voters had their say, and they re-elected Abbott in the 2022 midterms. Two bills targeting trans youth have already been filed ahead of next year's legislative session in Texas. We spoke with parents of trans kids, as well as members of the trans community in Austin, days after the midterm elections ended. We'll bring you that conversation after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. A few days after voting ended, we sat down in Austin with families of trans children as well as members of the transgender community. Mia lives in Austin with her 12-year-old trans son. She joined us along with Sarah, who has an 8-year-old trans daughter. Sarah's older child, Emma, also joined the conversation. And a quick note, we changed their names for this discussion out of concern for their safety. And lastly, we were joined by Morgan Davis. Morgan was born and raised in Austin. Last spring, he left his job at the Texas Department of Family Services over that directive to investigate families of trans young people. As Emma reminded us during this conversation, trans kids are just kids. So we started by asking Mia and Sarah to just tell us more about their children. Here's Mia. It's crazy how much we've been talking about him being trans the past few months because it's been more than we have the past since he came out. It just hasn't been a thing. It's probably, like, the thing that I think about the least about. Like, you know what I mean? When I consider him, it's, like, the thing that's on my mind the least. But he's a rock star. What's your favorite thing? I know it's hard to talk about the favorite thing. Oh, oh, I can tell you right now. He's the kindest person I've ever met in my entire life. Just just kind and genuine. Just, like, a a good person. And, like, empathetic and compassionate. And just, he's a, yeah, he's, he's amazing. Sarah, what about your daughter? My daughter is um, truly a gift to me, to my family. I think I've learned more about raising her, about myself, really, 
is really what this journey has been. My daughter has, is, you know, who she is and always has been. And really it's been um, me learning and growing. And I've been given that opportunity because I was blessed to have her, really. I want to ask you your favorite thing about her, too. Um, she is like hilarious. So for instance, <laughs> yes, she is. For instance, we were watching the election results come in and um she was reading the screen. She said, Democrat and Republican. What does that mean? I said, Oh, those are the two major parties in our political system in the United States. And she goes, A party? Can anybody go to this party? <laughs> and I was like, I kind of love the way you framed that. Yes, anyone can join that party. So. Emma, you jumped in right away and said, yes, my sister is is hilarious. Yeah, especially with like the dad jokes, like <laughs> ev- every single time we go camping, like everyone gathers around and they're like, hey, what's your newest joke? And I think her favorite one is probably the one where it's like a man walks into his backyard and sees three holes. What does he say? Well, well, well. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... <laughs> Morgan, you were an investigator for Texas's Child Welfare Agency when this directive was issued earlier this year. I think it would be helpful to first walk us through what a typical investigation would look like. Typically, um, we're assigned the investigations on a rotation. And so my supervisor will call me and say, you've got a, you've got one. And then typically what we do is then I'll call the reporter and ask questions about the case. And then I will, on a normal investigation, if the child is in school, I will go to the school, bring them out of class, meet with them privately. Um, At that point, you interview and photograph and ask a series of questions. Um, At that point, I will then go to the parents' home. And then we do a home visit, interview the parents, look around the home, assess safety. I would call my supervisor and ask next steps for the case. What instructions did you receive regarding this directive when it came to investigating families who were providing gender-affirming care for their children. On the 22nd, we received a letter, and in two days we had a case. Um, the only, and I, I asked at the time if they had anything in writing, can you give me anything? And the answer was no. We had a half-page letter. And, and I just want to pause. When you said, do you have anything in writing, what did you want to see on paper. I guess the why. Why are these children being investigated? Ten months prior, I had started transitioning. I was 53. And so from my knowledge and my process, I knew that these children were safe and actually well cared for. And so you know, what are you looking for? What do you need me to find? Um, went to everyone. Every major medical organization was kind enough to talk to me and said the complete opposite, that if a family had this opportunity and didn't do it, there the abuse would lie. And I was told to go into the home. Um, I was told I could recuse myself if I wanted to, and I chose not to. Um, my supervisor was aware that I'd been transitioning, and I was told to go into that home with, and to treat them with love and respect and walk out. And at that point, we would close the case because... Genuinely, there was not a single person who did not think that this was a political, uh, golly, I don't know if you call it a stunt ma'am or a, a, political, um, a political move. As someone who'd been doing this work, I'm, I'm trying to understand how 
from an ethical perspective, you try to, I can't say make peace, but try to reconcile what you are being asked to do with the way you approach this work and try to approach it through an ethical lens. It broke my heart. I did not have, I kind of got into this man because I wanted to be the advocate that I didn't have. That's why when I look around this room, I see these, these families, excuse me, that love their children and want to protect them. And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be the advocate that I didn't have. And so I genuinely thought going into that home, I could, I could do that. I thought if there was abuse or neglect, I'll be able to find it. And it was the complete opposite. This was a loving family, and their beautiful trans daughter was exceptional. And ironically, it was completely different from any home I had ever been in, and mine, and mine included. I knew that that night, when they wouldn't close the case, that we were in trouble. Sarah, can you, can you take me to the day the directive passed and... As a mom, what you were thinking and and what you were feeling about what this meant for your daughter. I was terrified, panic-stricken. A sponsored bill came up to make us declare us child abusers if we gave, you know, the proper health care to our kids. And that bill didn't even get through committee. And we had fought that and we had seen it die and that it had no teeth. And um, for me, I left those four legislative sessions that year, like um, feeling cynical, but but also still hopeful that like, hey, look at what came our way and look at what we fought back and, and still having trust in the democratic process that, um, that the way it played out. And then this really was so clear that it was just a maneuver that completely circumvented that democratic process that we have here in the U.S. and in Texas of of how do we form a law and make a decision that's going to impact a community like this. Um, and that was so frustrating to know that it they didn't play by the rules, that they didn't win, and so they went and made up their own rules. And the people that were being impacted would be my child, who I had to get an attorney for, um, to keep her safe because I had been vocal. I had gone to the ledge. I had talked to media. Um, and we sat we sat her down uh, along with Emma and told them, okay, you're going to have this letter in your backpack. You have representation if anyone comes to school, even if they are super official and they have a badge and everything. Like, you don't have to talk about your family. You just tell them, here's this letter. I have an attorney. I'm sorry, I just want to pause here. Remind us how old your daughter is? She had just turned eight. So you're, you're having this conversation? With her and Emma, sitting on the couch with my husband. And she says to me, what's an attorney? And that is like, that's kind of when it all really hit me. Like how ridiculous this is. And how, just like Morgan said, like, we, we, I think, are exceptional parents because we work so hard and we, we seek out guidance 
and we want the best for our kids, and we know the danger that exists out there, and we fight really hard for them. And the reality is that I've become friends with kids that have aged out of the foster system here in Texas who were physically abused and kicked out of their homes for being transgender. And I know social workers that have bought makeup and clothing for those kids so that they can feel affirmed. And that's the reality is we have a system that was already so underfunded and understaffed that now additional resources are going to be taken away to try to split up families like mine. Emma, I'm, I'm, watching, I'm watching your response. I have a younger sister. Who, and when I tell you <laughs> <laughs> the number of battles I have gone, gotten into about my sister, as an older sibling, what is, what is this experience been like for you? I guess I've kind of been shielded from it because up until recently I wasn't like directly involved with like all this work that my mom's been doing. So I don't know. Maybe it's just because I was younger, but you kind of hid it from me, I guess. But like now that I'm exposed to it, I'm kind of like, ooh, these are like politicians who call themselves fair and honest. And then they're just like, cheating the system to get their way and to get the votes and to stay in power. I mean, I haven't had anyone, like, say anything directly about her, to me at least. But if someone did, I don't think it would be very pretty, so. (laughs) I understand. Mia, you said this experience for you around this directive, this is is new territory because... Mm -hmm. You're not from here. Yeah. So walk me through what happened for your family when this directive dropped. I physically felt it. Um, the initial reaction, just disbelief. Let me like, this is not happening right now. And then panicking and scrambling and trying to figure out what to do next and having no idea what to do. Not really having friends here especially friends in the queer community are just not having a lot of support and feeling like your back is up against the wall. All you want to do is just make sure that you keep your child safe, but knowing that like, how do you do that without making yourselves targets and asking my child to live in a closet that he never lived in before and being afraid to reach out for help and not knowing who's safe and who's not safe. And, all the things like that are the hot topics, the hot button topics that are going on right now. Like the, my family is directly affected by a lot of them. Just a lot of just a lot of wondering what what to do next. What do I do next? That that does. You brought up something I was wondering about, which is how you as parents find support for for yourselves when, as you said, Mia, you're not certain whether everyone is safe. Where where are you finding support right now? I was telling my son on the way over here, like why we're doing this, and it was just because I know that like odds are even this even even here in the city that there's there are other moms that are feeling the exact way that that they're in my situation that are in my shoes, and they're feeling just so lonely and isolated and just need just need an ear. Sarah, what about what about you? Where are you finding support? 
I mean, the silver lining that came out of the legislative session for me last year is that I left those rooms with community like I had never had community before in my life. And those are some of my dearest and closest friends now. And I was just talking to Mia about this, about how like it's really hard to navigate the world living in this space with just with moms who don't have trans kids because you're always having to explain why you are not functioning well, why your anxiety so why are you so hypervigilant? Why are you not sleeping? But having like this texting group that I can write to, they get it. I don't have to give any background. Like I can just talk about what happened today or how I'm feeling and there's no judgment because we're all doing exactly the same right now, which is surviving and and trying to fight too but for me same thing coming here like I think the antidote to fear and anxiety is action and so I feel better even if I don't win like knowing that I came and I shared stories and I've seen the impact sharing your story can have I grew up in Alabama in a conservative evangelical family and have so many people who, you know, my my daughter is the first out trans person I've ever known in my life. Being able to share the story of my background and my journey and what I've learned, it has helped. It's opened their hearts. They get it now, you know. Some of them have, like, they speak up for me now. We're listening to a conversation we recently recorded at KUT, Austin's NPR station. We spoke with the families of trans children about how a directive targeting gender-affirming health care is affecting their lives. We'll hear more from our conversation in Austin in a moment. Reverend Remington Olivia Johnson joined us for this part of the conversation. She's a trans woman, a Presbyterian minister, and a registered nurse serving in the ICU. Remington has advocated against anti-trans legislation in Texas for years. I asked whether she was surprised by the new directive. No. What, what folks need to understand is this stuff doesn't just come out of the ether. A lot of folks don't know transgender children. It's a little bit mysterious. It's a little bit ambiguous um, in terms of how the arguments are. You know, we, we want to protect the girls. Who doesn't want to protect the girls? Everybody wants to protect the girls. So it's a message on first pass where everyone goes, sure. Um, and so we see the folk, folks on the right turn out. We see it, it generates incredible aggression and, and, and sort of fomenting of, of panic on the right. And on the left, it's mostly apathy. And so you have this just nasty mixture where it is this lonely fight of a bunch of moms of kids showing up and going against, you know, $45 million money machines. When you first heard about the directive, that it was, that it was going through, what sort of harm were you most concerned about? When I first heard that bill was happening, it felt just crushing because it felt like a personal failure of mine that I didn't work hard enough, I didn't show up enough, I didn't sacrifice enough to protect these families. So we have have an election two days ago. I turn my phone on, um, have a break at work. I've been working three straight. So I turn my phone on, see how my moms are doing. And what do I see? I see, oh, okay, we're making decisions to move. Which in some way 
is a relief for every family that gets out of Texas because then I know that they're safe. And at the same time, I know these children. My child plays with their children. I just want to note here that in response to the Texas Directive, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Texas Pediatric Society said in a statement, quote, for young people who identify as transgender, studies show that gender-affirming care can reduce emotional distress, improve their sense of well-being, and reduce the risk of suicide. I think it's important to provide that context. We heard from Remington there that she's hearing from family she knows they're considering leaving the state. Mia, is that a conversation you're having with your family? For the first time ever, yeah. I think it was this past weekend. I don't I don't want to leave Texas. It's like this is the first place I've ever lived where I feel like I've home, I made a home and I like it here, I love it here. I don't want to have to leave. I don't want to start over again. I can't afford to start over again. This is my home. Sarah, what about you? Is that a conversation you're having with your family? Yeah, I think there's not a family that's not having that conversation right now that has a trans child in Texas. So I share custody with Emma's dad from uh, my ex-husband, my first marriage. And uh, we have 50-50 custody. And he lives here in town. And um, we have a pretty good relationship. And um, if I need to move to protect my younger daughter, um, Emma will stay here with him. And Right now, that's um, that's a deal breaker for me. Um, it's important to me for my family to stay together. It's also important for me to teach my kids that you fight for what's important for you, important to you. We are surrounded and uplifted by the most amazing community here in Austin, and so much so that um, my youngest daughter doesn't really know all the horrors that are happening in the world right now um, that await her, sadly. And yes, at some point, I have to have that difficult conversation with her, but not yet. Life is beautiful. She enjoys Minecraft. She has tons of friends. (laughs) Yeah, a little too much, maybe. (laughs) She'll be mad that I said that. Um, She's so creative. Uh, She is thriving, um, she is seen. Um, she's valued. Um, she's loved. Direct harm, I think, is going to more directly have to happen to us before I make the decision, okay, it's time. And if it was just me, I would stay here and fight this until I had nothing left. Morgan, we talked about the investigation um, you were directed to, to do with one family. How does that impact the child involved, the parents, the, the family structure as a whole. Traumatizes them. The reporter, my reporter from, was a mandated reporter, and she wept on the phone. Literally in my notes in the report said, reporter wept. She had to do this, and she wanted that known that she had to do this. Her colleague was considered a star and had had served the state of Texas for 25 years, down to the mother who I had to call, who also wept. And she said because she knew it was coming. And it didn't help that I was trans. It didn't help that I was friendly. In the end, I was an investigator walking into their home. 
And thank God they had attorneys. But as I was walking out, the attorney made the comment, you shouldn't be here. That's how many of the caseworkers felt. They have crushing caseloads and cases that, that truly need their help and care. And this is what they're asked to do, is to go into a loving, kind home. And at the very end, I was the last person left in my unit because they could, morally, could not continue. And these are people that dedicated their life to service. Now, Remington, some families in Texas are protected under a PFLAG lawsuit. Uh, The organization has about 600 members in Texas. What would you say to people who say, okay, yes, there's this directive, but it has no teeth? So when we think about the courts, does it have teeth? Does it not have teeth? The courts will not save us. We will save ourselves. Here's what happens with the courts. Here's what happens with the way the Republican playbook is written, is you're a person of power. You're Abbott. You're Paxton. You have a big microphone. You get out and you say something. And then what happens, whether it is true or not true, or found um, the judges side with you, or they don't side with you, or a bunch of lawyers help out the families of trans kids, what happens Every single time, whether you're uh, the mother of a trans kid or an undocumented person in Texas um, or somebody else who they just happen to decide to target that day, is you will suffer. That is their power. And democracy does not protect us from that. That is the big microphone. We got small microphones. Um, And so what happens is you get this sort of, you know, you get what is happening where Nazis show up at drag time story hour. I'd love to hear from each of you what you want people around the country to remember or to understand that you think maybe doesn't get discussed enough, doesn't get talked about, gets overlooked. But as we see these laws continue to pop up across the country targeting trans youth, what do you you want people to understand or what questions do you want people to ask themselves? Sarah, I'll come to you first. I would ask people to not look away. To have a little bit of faith in some moms who are just trying to do the best job we can raising our kids. And our goal is for them to get to adulthood and thrive and be happy. And, you know, that medicine is not perfect. There's always going to be, you know, case-by-case basis with these kids. And it's a journey for each of them. And sometimes people change the way they feel at different points. And all of that is okay. The goal is to get them to adulthood so that they're happy and thriving so that because there's nothing more um, irreversible than death. We heard from Sarah, but Mia, what about you? Just at the end of the day, they're kids. And all we want is for our kids to be okay. And anybody can empathize with that. Anybody can. Morgan, what about for you? We need to let the kids be kids. They're... But I do want them to see these amazing families. I just want them to have that mirror just a little bit. Because one thing through this experience has been getting to meet people and shake our hands and say, now you know someone who's trans. Emma, 
What about you? Trans kids are kids, and you gotta showcase the suffering so that people understand, but you gotta showcase the joy and the happiness that people are also experiencing in like wearing a dress for the first time or putting on makeup or wearing a suit. I love suits. <laughs> and Remington, because you you have been spending so much time at the Capitol and and I heard you when when you said people think this doesn't affect them or because it's uncomfortable, they might lean out. I think it's really a useful exercise to leave people with questions they should ask themselves? Let's, let's sort of wrap all this up, right? Which is, we have the stories of these families trying to do the very best they can to know their children as every parent seeks to know their child. That their children aren't hiding from them, that your children are coming to them and saying, hey, here I am, I want to be with you, I want to be family, and I want to shine. And you have these families seeing their children shine and supporting them and resonating with that. And it is generative and beautiful. And so the question we ask is, why is this so threatening? Why this? Why now? And what does this mean for a society that allows one particular group of people, children, and one particular type of child to be singled out, fundraised against, vilified in the public square, legislated against, um, terrorized. Why would we allow that to happen? And so you have to pull farther back and you have to start asking yourself more uncomfortable questions, which is, What does it mean when a legislator gets all the information, gets talked to by all the experts, has the children come before them and testify, has the parents, has the activists, has everybody, and looks at you and says, I see you, and I believe that you should suffer, and I will take no steps to protect you or insulate against the harm that the bill that I'm voting for is going to do. What does it mean for us to live in a society where these are the people that govern us? It's uncomfortable. You want to believe that these folks have a heart, that these folks would see the suffering, that you'd see somebody and you'd be moved, and yet time and time again they haven't. So the uncomfortable question is, what is it like? to live in this place. And many folks are very familiar what it's like to be a minority and, and, and to, to not see the majority take action to protect you. But you expand even further, and now you throw gender into the mix. And a lot of times, the, 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 the trans person that people are aware of is the one that is most visible. I'm just shy of six foot three, and I am radiant. Um, <laughs> And so folks are familiar with seeing me and they know what that looks like and they know that sometimes it makes them uncomfortable. Why does it make them uncomfortable? Because sometimes gender makes us feel a little uncomfortable. And so the question for everybody to think about is why? And to just 
fair, have a little bit of curiosity. No one's going to solve this, right? But you're just going to say, huh, I'm going to look at that. Why does that make me a little uncomfortable? Was I a tomboy? Was I, was I allowed to show my shoulders? You know, um, was I sexually harassed? Um, was I told to man up? We've all had gender forced upon us. We've all been put into gender categories. We have all suffered the binary, every one of us. And so the question for everyone listening is, what has it been like to suffer under this system? Because our suffering has been their suffering and our triumph is their triumph. Um, Pantsuits are for everybody. And that's because of us. I want to thank our panel in Austin for joining us. Reverend Remington Olivia Johnson is a Presbyterian minister, ICU nurse, and trans rights activist. Also, Morgan Davis. He left his job at the Texas Department of Family Services over the directive to investigate families of trans young people in Texas. Mia lives in Austin with her 12-year-old trans son and Sarah. She has an 8-year-old trans daughter. Sarah's older child, Emma, also joined us. This conversation is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations across the country, including KUT, Austin's NPR station. 1A Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This conversation was produced by 1A's Anna Casey. 1A editor Amanda Williams leads our Remaking America project. Many thanks to KUT for hosting and to KUT's Jake Perlman and Renee Chavez for audio engineering. 1A comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon.